Many people have made the journey across the United States, mostly pioneers looking to reset their lives or look for their fortunes. The first to do this, however, were Lewis and Clark and their core. This week on the Gems of History podcast, we cover Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, and the men that conquered the West. I do like, okay, Evan, right up top, we have to address the fact that your statement about liquid IV probably caused the most controversy we've ever had. Oh, yeah, we got, <laughs> from, I got From something we've said in an episode. I know, and we've said some things. Oh, yeah. To be quite frank. Yeah, we, we both got texts yep. about liquid. I didn't, like, I know that people love it. I hear you. I'll re- reiterate it again, like, electrolyte these nuts. I don't... <laughs> I don't think it works. I think it's fake. I think it's snake oil. What if <laughs> the show's is. the show's ending so they can't sue us? <laughs> I hey, was, dude, I was thinking that at work today. I'm like, what if like for the last five or six episodes that we do, we just start throwing everything at the wall and being like, you guys can't complain. We're getting out of here after <laughs> this anyway. So at this point, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna comment about every war that's ever happened. <laughs> you know that place? Yeah. They should have lost. Yeah. They suck. <laughs> Spe- I have some... Never mind. That was going to be a really bad one. We're not done yet, so I can't say it on my Speaking of really bad, welcome to the Gems of History podcast, everybody. Yay. <laughs> I'm Jacob Schopp, here with Evan Roosh. Yeah. How are we all doing? The end days approach. The end is nigh. If yes. you didn't listen to our last episode, yeah, we're going to be done with the podcast at the end of the year this year, so... If you want to go back and listen just to the the intro of the last episode, then you'll hear our whole announcement. But yeah, we're reaching the end times. The end times. The four horsemen, but they're just us. It's just it's us. Just us, two, on, us and the dogs. Us and the dogs. Yeah, baby and Zeus. Sorry if you're on your fiance. She doesn't come. Nope. No, she's not allowed. <laughs> Boys trips and, and the dogs. But yeah, uh, we have a really, really cool episode uh, for y'all today. We're taking a... Really cool approach. I think this is something we've talked about doing with other topics and figured now's the time to to really do it. But we're covering Lewis and Clark, and it'll be two weeks, back-to-back episodes, of course, with this first one that we're doing today, really going over like the the way that you're taught in high school, in grade school, in your history classes, diving into what is portrayed as the truth of this expedition. In the intro read, I said, like, they were the men that conquered the West. There were already people in the West, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, this episode is going to really focus on just one side of the Lewis and Clark expect- expedition, and it's the side of the whites. So. Yeah. And, like, I know we've said on here multiple times, like, we like to teach you guys what you didn't learn in school, but right. this is pretty much going to be, like, what you learned in school. Obviously, in more detail yes. than what you would have been taught in school, unless you took, like, a an extended frontier history class or something like unless that. unless you went to lewis and clark university yeah, exactly <laughs> which that's crazy so yeah we but today is going to be like kind of i guess you could call it the accepted narrative that mm-hmm. we get told pretty much everywhere and anywhere but yeah there's a lot of stuff that you would never have heard about the lewis and clark story like i texted evan yesterday and told him <laughs> about one of the things that we'll probably touch on next week mm-hmm. with this story that's very funny so yeah and yeah like Jacob mentioned next week we'll be our second go, if you will, at the story, but really looking at it through the lens of, and through the sources that we find, the lens of, or from the different Native American tribes that uh, Meriwether Lewis and um, William Clark ran into. Because the stories are very different. Yeah. And if, we'll, you, if you haven't gathered that, we'll, that's we'll the reason touch we're on, too. We'll touch on uh, Sacagawea and like mm-hmm. her whole story and... I I watched a documentary. That's how it's. Pretty- I watched a documentary, and there is a, a Native American woman who is a Native American historian, and she said that's how it's pronounced. So I'm going to trust her. So yes, that's right there. We have. <laughs> I mean, that says it all. Yeah. Like, so we could say Sacagawea this whole episode, and then actually say the correct one next week. But I mean, yeah, we'll touch on her. We'll touch on like 
the enslaved person that they brought with them on this journey that all all of i've read like two books from the early 19 like literally like the turn of the century 20th century and they all called him a servant oh (laughs) which it's very funny to see how that language has changed now they swept that one under the rug yeah real quick so we'll touch on a lot of that stuff next week but yeah this week we're going to be definitely just talking about what lewis and clark wrote in their journals pretty much which is how we know this entire story but just I mean, you do have to give like the these men that undertake the journey. You do have to give them credit. Was oh, very for sure, very harrowing. But yeah, just with our format, I think we've explained how we're how we're handling it. And yeah, excited and, to dive in. And like, we're not gonna try and vilify them or anything like no, that. It's like no. they truly were great men who did a great thing here. Right. But it's just that along the way, there's a lot of stuff that has gotten portrayed as heroism when it's really it's like just more colonial expansion stuff. Right. So yes. Yeah. All right, so I guess let's let's hop on and let's meet these two fellers. And it's funny too because all the documentaries that I watched, they like, oh, Lewis and Clark. You hear it, and you just associate it as one thing. You don't think of them as separate people, which is true. Like I never thought of it that way, but it's always oh, yeah. Lewis and Clark. It's never just Meriwether Lewis or William Clark. Right? Yeah, it's Lewis and Clark expedition. Like they'd even have like a group name. Like the Donner Party, right? Like you kind of associate with that. I never really thought about. It. They are just two peas. Um, eventually, they get called like the Core Discovery, obviously. Right. But like, yeah, it's just two guys. <laughs> it really is. All right. So as the calendar turned into the 19th century, uh, big old boy Thomas Jefferson was kind of getting nervous about British expansion into the uncharted territories to the west. There was kind of stories going around of a trip through Canada that was transcontinental from the East Coast to the Pacific. So Thomas Jefferson kind of realized we need to get out West in our part of the country and make sure that we do it first before all of these other people get out there and kind of influence the people that live there and tell them, hey, we're the ones in charge, you know, mm-hmm. it, to kind of preemptively get there and avoid a war to get there later. <laughs> right. Yeah. To claim it. Like we claim the moon first, so it's ours. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> So at first, the idea to get to the Pacific coast was to travel through Russia and then across the ocean to the western coast of the United States. Very roundabout way of doing it. There were a lot of ideas. This was the time before chalkboard. Maybe before the time before chalkboards. I think they had chalkboards. Okay, the time before whiteboards. So they were just accepting all ideas, putting them on the board. Well, and to be fair, like all of the people in America had no idea... There are so many stories about how untamed the West was. They were like, there could just be prehistoric monsters living out there that we have no idea about, or it could just be completely unpassable land. So, Isn't that crazy to think about? They just literally had no... There was no reference. If you haven't been there, no one had been there. Really, except for like fur trappers, exactly. So, like, they just had no idea how big America was, really. Yeah, and what was actually there, like that there was just a whole desert in Arizona, like, yeah, just, literally just a salt lake that's not a lake. Yeah, like <laughs> that makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, one man on this Russian expedition named John Ledyard tried to do it that way. But while he was traveling through Russia, he got arrested because the Empress of Russia changed her mind about letting him through. So he was thrown in jail, sent out of the country. I think he was sent to Bulgaria. And then he shortly died, or he died shortly after that. So that didn't work. Instead, Jefferson kind of returned to square one and got thrown a lucky break. Because (laughs) lucky for him... This little guy named Napoleon Bonaparte was really struggling over in France. Strapped for cash. Yeah. (laughs) He's kind of had a lot going on right at the turn of the the 19th century. Side note, very excited to watch the Napoleon movie. Oh, it's going to be so good. Like, Joaquin Phoenix looks amazing in that role. Perfect person to do it. Definitely excited. Basically, at this time, Napoleon realized that like he had so much going on over in France and in Europe in general that the vast holdings of land that he technically owned in America, he had no way to defend them with the resources that he had available. So in addition to him just not being able to watch these places, he needed money to help fund the wars and the things that he was doing over in Europe. So to remedy that situation, he met with some emissaries from the United States, and Thomas Jefferson basically gave him a proposal saying, hey, I'll buy that big old tract of land over in the United States for a cool $15 million. And Napoleon said, you got a deal. 
the Louisiana Purchase is without a doubt the best fleece of all time. Oh, 100%. Like, we fleeced the Napoleon, the French for that land. If you don't know how big the Louisiana Purchase was, just Google it and look at the map. It is almost half of the country of the United States. It's truly insane how much land we got for $15 million, which is still, this is $15 million in 1803. So that's still a lot of money. Yes. But but 530 million acres of land. It's truly, <laughs> it's it, like basically overnight, the United States more than doubled in size from what it was at the current time period. So yeah, it's, Truly insane how important this purchase was. And a lot of it, too, was land that encroached on the British and Spanish-owned territories in the United States. So now Jefferson is already kind of pushing the boundaries and getting there before these opponents that he's putting in his own head. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So this is a, a big step for him. But man, like truly, from Louisiana till Idaho... Like that's it's so- yeah it's it's insane. So this was perfect for Jefferson, as I just mentioned. But like, even though there was a large opposition to this purchase, there was just a lot of people that were uncertain if this was a good idea. If spending all this money on this tract of land that we have no idea what it encompasses is worth it, right? But a majority of the Americans did agree and say, like, yeah, this is kind of a good good idea. We should have done this. But there's also just people that hated Jefferson. So we talked about this in many episodes that like the same opposition that Americans have to a lot of pol- political ideas now. Like that's not new. So yeah. it's very funny to imagine people who are probably like raising their voices in protest to the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah, like, we talked about people being against the Erie Canal. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> and then their town got skipped over. Yep. <laughs> yeah, just, people are always going to find something to complain about. So right, it's always going to be government spending too. <laughs> but it wasn't only the fact that Jefferson got a lot of land for this and was now kind of gaining public support for what he was doing, but he had a reason now to mm-hmm. expand into the West. There is a physical thing that he owned now that needed to be explored. Yeah, it's like buying a new property right next to yours. Exactly. Like, what's actually in there? What what skeletons are in the closet? It's it's pretty much like buying a house sight unseen, just looking at a right. listing and purchasing. Yeah, looking at the exterior. Wow, that's nice. Except he saw a hand-drawn map and said, that looks cool. Yeah. No one lives there, right? <laughs> it's it, it was probably I, like back in the day when old. This is really old timey maps. I don't know if it would have been like this, but the maps that were like from the medieval period mm. of the oceans, where there's just giant sea serpents on the maps and stuff like that. Yeah, like giant sea pigs. <laughs> yeah. So Jefferson saw a map with like dinosaurs roaming in this Louisiana Purchase. So under the guise of scientific exploration, which was truly part of the reason for this exploratory party to go out into this area, Jefferson went to Congress and asked them for a sum of $2,500, which after spending $15 million to buy this tract of land, it seems like pocket change pretty much. Just throw it in, yeah. But at the same time, he just asked for $15 million, and now he's asking for more money. So this, in the public eyes, this looks pretty reckless. What is he spending it all on? Uh, To be fair, Jefferson apparently had wanted to execute some sort of scientific expedition into the interior of North America since like the 1780s. But part of the reason for the influence was also to try and find the fabled Northwest Passage. Yes. The Northwest Passage, if you don't know, was supposedly an all-water route that would cross the entire United States. It doesn't actually exist. They found that out. But to a lot of settlers in the U.S. at the time who had no idea what was out there, it was a pretty common concept, and it was accepted as there's definitely something out there. It's basically just like you can take the rivers and the deltas of all these rivers and get to the Pacific coast on a boat entirely. It's like people really wanting the Fountain of Youth to be a Yeah. It's like, not quite. They were close. Like They just had to traverse like a good like section of land to get from the Missouri to the Columbia. And then eventually it took them to the ocean. So two rivers, you just had to cross the land right. to do that. You had to put wheels on your canoes. Yeah, there was exactly. Yeah. yeah. There was some walking involved on this harrowing journey. So Jefferson 
after all of this was kind of organized, told Spain, France, and Great Britain, like the three people that still had holdings in the United States, in Canada, in the areas kind of around, he told them the trip was for science and geographical advancement. But it was pretty much an excuse to move west and interact with the tribes in the area, as well as establish a base of influence in that unexplored part of the country. Like I mentioned, get there before anyone else so you can claim it. Yeah, this is for science. Wink. Wink, wink. <laughs> and partially... We've, it w- used that, we've used that uh, excuse uh, quite a lot. Oh, yeah. Hence the Manhattan Project. Yes. <laughs> and to be fair, it was... Par- like, a lot of it was scientific. They logged a yes, lot of animals yeah. and plants and stuff like that. But yeah, he just pretty much wanted to go west. Once he got approval from Congress for that loan of $2,500, Jefferson then reached out to Meriwether Lewis, who was at the time his 29-year-old personal secretary, and he told him to go meet with specialists in armaments and materials, as well as study geography, medicine, math, pretty much whatever he was going to need on this expansive journey. Yeah, and that was very all-encompassing. Like He had to read up on a lot. Like He had Plenty of backgrounds um, in the military, for example. But yeah, they can't just shoot your way through across the West. One of the books that I read, well, I told you this, that there is like an AI project Mm. on Spotify playlist that's a podcast that just AI narrates books. And they had one of the books that I was reading, so I I tried listening to it, but... Oh man, it's hard. <laughs> it yeah. just put me to sleep. But they there's a section where they describe pretty much like what they needed to be for this journey and they're like they needed to be hunters, they needed to be explorer explorers, they needed to be f- traders, they needed to be hunter or uh, trappers, they needed to be carpenters. Like literally the list was like 40 different jobs long mm-hmm. that they needed to know how to do just on their own. Yeah, each one of them had to really step up and really be like Swiss army knives in a way. Yeah. So of Lewis, Jefferson himself said, quote, Of courage undaunted, possessing a firmness and perseverance of purpose which nothing but impossibilities could divert from its direction. Careful as a father of those committed to his charge, yet steady in the maintenance of order and discipline. Intimate with the Indian character, customs, and principles. Habituated to the hunting life. Honest, disinterested, liberal, of sound understanding, and with a and a fidelity to truth so scrupulous that whatever he should report would be as certain as if seen by ourselves. End quote. Very high praise from a president. Yes, he was very confident in Lewis's abilities. He had been his secretary for, I think, two years at mm-hmm. this point. So, yeah, he kind of knew what he was capable of. And But to get that praise from Thomas Jefferson must have felt pretty good. <laughs> it's very funny to ask your secretary to just go mad <laughs> right. the entire, yeah. entire West. <laughs> After you take that call, can you just explore this millions of acres of land that i just purchased yeah after you get done setting my schedule can you please go fight grizzly bears out west and indians and indians and whoever else is out there jefferson allowed lewis to choose who would help lead the expedition with him because he knew one person on his own can't be in charge of this whole thing so he left it up to lewis and lewis chose william clark Clark, at the time of the expedition, was 33 years old. He and Lewis were both military men, and for the purpose of their journey, they were both captains. And this is a surprising part for a lot of people, is that despite both of them being equal in rank, they were both captains at the time, neither of them ever fought with each other for control during the expedition. They Mm -hmm. worked together very well. It was a very harmonious relationship. So that was kind of a, a surprising thing for a lot of people. Yeah, they did have plenty of background. Like They knew each other pretty well. They served with each other. So that probably helped out a ton with not creating infighting. But I mean, we've seen that and we've covered that on the show that the infighting is usually what uh, kills the most people on these types of oh, yeah. harrowing things like the Donner Party, like the wreckage, which is now escaping my mind that we just covered oh, like last yeah, month. Yeah, the... Uh... Between the two groups. <laughs> no, I'm going to lose it, Yeah, too. I can't believe it. The, the, the wreck of the Grafton. Thank you. Thank you, the wreck of the Grafton. So the fact that they were able to be cohesive, work together, like it's really the key part of their survival. Oh, yeah. So in addition to the two leaders, they enlisted 26 other men, including soldiers, frontiersmen, and interpreters. In addition, another 16 were hired on as guides and assistants until the expedition until the expedition reached a certain point. It was until mm-hmm. they reached the Mandan tribes, which we will get to towards the middle of the journey, but it's pretty much the 
kind of the northernmost point of the Missouri River that they're going to reach before going west. And they kind of set that as, you guys can help us get here, and then you can come back home. Before the journey officially begins, let's give a little bit of background on who Lewis and Clark actually were. There's not a ton out there. Like, There's probably books just dedicated to them, but I didn't read those. So just a quick summary kind of of who they are. Meriwether Lewis was one of six children growing up. Three of those children were his blood siblings, and two of them were his half-siblings because his father died from pneumonia when he was kind of young and his mother remarried, so he inherited two more siblings. He went to college after being privately tutored, and he graduated from college in 1793. The next year, he participated in stamping down the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania <laughs> as part of the state militia. Kind of forget that there were actually a few different rebellions like about taxes. Yeah. At the start of the US of A. Like we like when we had to reinstitute taxes, people were not happy. Like that oh, was yeah. the whole reason why we fought the British. Why did we dump all our tea? Yeah. <laughs> was that for nothing? We're gonna dump this whiskey now? Yeah. So yeah, after he put down the whiskey rebellion, he served alongside William Clark in the ar- er, in the militia. He didn't officially join the army until after this. So he served alongside William Clark in 19 or er, 1795 and then after that joined the regular army and became a captain before signing on as Thomas Jefferson's personal secretary. Yeah, so not a bad resume to have. No. Like he put down a rebellion and was the was the secretary to a president. Pretty like the guy knows what he's doing. He's very smart. Oh yeah, and you're a captain in the army, so yeah. you you're a good guy, right? William Clark, on the other hand, was born into a family of ten kids, being that's crazy. The ninth one of the litter. Five of his older brothers had fought in the Revolutionary War. One of his brothers, I believe his name was George George Rogers Clark. He was one of the Revolutionary heroes, mm-hmm. and eventually the family and their slaves settled in Kentucky. So, the, yeah. if you couldn't tell, both of these families are pretty well off. They're very wealthy. And to your point with the brothers, can you? It's not like Clark could just go back to Christmas and just, like, what did you other nine do? Like, George Rogers Clark was a general. Yeah. <laughs> Who would later, like, spend a lot of time fighting indigenous peoples that were. That's why they settle in Kentucky eventually. Right, right. But yeah, it's very, like both these men, very well-to-do families and really, really influential families. It's a big, it's big shoes to fill when five of your brothers (laughs) served in the revolution. Right. So yeah, it's, he, he had a lot of pressure on his shoulders being probably, I think he was the youngest son. I don't know if the youngest in the family was a girl or a boy, didn't say. So, but being one of the youngest got a lot to look up, lot to look forward to growing Mm -hmm. up. At the age of 19, William Clark entered military service, and this is where he became friends with Lewis, as we mentioned before. The year after they met, Clark resigned from the army, and he ended up just going on to manage the family estate, kind of become a farmer slash slave owner. Yeah, that's how you know that the family's very well off. Like They had to designate a person to manage it. Yeah, at the estate, (laughs) which an estate back then is a big piece of land. Right, yeah. So William Clark kind of just settled onto his family's home until 1803, and that's when Lewis contacted him, and that's kind of where their journey together truly started. They, I mean, they they known each other, and they just kind of knew. Lewis kind of knew this guy is a good guy. He is competent in the role that he had in the army, so he should be a fu- good guy to kind of help me out here. He's made of the right stuff. He's yeah. got a certain pizzazz. Yeah, definitely. Et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, by late 1803, the group was all set to embark on their journey. Yes, and it was on July 5th, 1803. So they just got done celebrating the 4th of July where uh, Lewis visited Harper's Ferry to obtain munitions. Uh, he then rode a custom-made 55-foot keelboat, also called The Boat or The Barge. Very creative, guys. Yeah, right. Uh, down the Ohio River and joined Clark in Clarksville, Indiana. And it was from there that Clark took the boat up the Mississippi River while Lewis continued along on horseback to collect additional supplies. So with these kind of journeys, we also talked about this in the Donner Party episode, you have to collect 
a ton of stuff and it takes months to get ready for a journey you're not just hopping in a wagon and going yeah like literally hundreds of pounds of sugar and coffee and tobacco and whatever else you're gonna want right right like they had to bring surveying instruments like compasses telescopes uh chronometer which don't know what that is never heard of that before i should say magnetic fields um camping supplies uh such as oil cloth steel flints tools corn mill mosquito netting weapons and ammunition medicines books maps all the stuff didn't have a game boy no one brought a game boy with with like pokemon on it to pass the time yeah right like at least bring something it's a ball in a cup or an- the ball in the cup, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I but- guess a chronometer is an instrument for measuring time. So, oh, okay. So, like a sundial. Sure. <laughs> in addition to this, uh, Lewis made a point to collect, quote unquote, gifts to Native Americans going along the journey. Lots and of gifts. You have to. They gave them beads, face paint, tobacco. Combs, cloth, ribbons, sewing kits, and mirrors. If you're unfamiliar with how anything works, you can't use that in a lot of practical sense, or like, for example, buying your land. Yeah. Which was an excuse, like, a lot of when we displaced Native Americans, like, oh, you don't have money for this land. You're mismanaging it. Get out of here. A lot of it, too, was like they gave them whiskey. They gave them... The biggest thing was medals, honestly. Mm -hmm. They gave the chiefs of the tribes medals because that was a way for the chiefs to kind of show, like, yeah, they revere me as the leader of this group. And it was also just a way for honoring the people. Right, right. But it's just... Like, when I look at that list, like, it's... It honestly sounds like stuff that you have in... Like a drawer at yeah. your house. Yeah, that's that's the everything drawer. <laughs> but to kind of go over the viewpoint that we're trying to get across here, like these are gifts that they thought, like, we can just give them some beads and they'll be fine with us traversing. They're there. savages. They don't have mirrors. Right. They don't even have brick walls. They're intense. I bet they've never brushed their hair. Right. <laughs> uh, Lewis also entrusted the recruiting for, of men for the Corps of Volunteers for Northwest Discovery. The CVND, which I'll call it from now. The Covend. The Covend. Um, but Orwell's called the Core of Discovery, quite frankly. Yeah, that's easier. Uh, throughout the winter of 1803 and 1804, Clark recruited and trained men at Camp Du Bois, which is north Dubois. of... Dubois. Dubois. <laughs> it's a French area, I think. See, I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of French names in this. Yes. It is funny, though, because like this time where they spend at Camp Dubois, they actually try, They were planning to settle at St. Louis and mm-hmm. camp there for the winter. But they went to St. Louis, and it was still technically owned by the Spanish because uh-huh. the Louisiana Purchase hadn't gone through yet. And so The notes haven't made it there. Yet. Yeah, so they went to there, and they were like, hey, we're going to camp here. And they're like, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> so they got kicked out of St. Louis and just went north and camped. Right. Get out of here, group of men with guns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shoot. So, yeah, it's just kind of funny that, like, it, it took way longer than people think for these messages to get across. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they chose, for the recruitment side of things, uh, they chose unmarried, you know, healthier, younger men who were good hunters and new survival skills like they did spend a lot of time training but a lot of these men were you know, they had a background in how to do this they weren't just like recruited off the street right and they spent a lot of the time in the winter too they went into st louis and talked to a lot of the hunter gatherers and like the people the fur traders and stuff like that who had been through there and who knew the land a little better just because the missouri river is a very it's a very untamed piece of wilderness yeah honestly it they called it the big muddy river because a lot of the time it was in like extremely muddy and very hard to traverse very and icky. depending on the season it's very it's very chaotic you don't really know how it's going to act at any given time of the year right. so a lot of these guys that had been out there knew better what time of the year this is the river is going to be more tameable at so you never really know and as lewis put it he said quote so as we may make calculations before we set out. So there you they, go. <laughs> they just kind of went around and asked all these people, we don't know what's out here. You kind of do. <laughs> Can you help, please? Yeah. 
my GPS isn't working. Yep. <laughs> all in all, the Corps of Discovery expedition party included 45 people, including Lewis Clark, 27 unmarried soldiers, a French Indian interpreter, a contracted boat crew, and an enslaved person owned by Clark named York. York. I wasn't going to, like, throw the word servant out there because... (laughs) I mean, it it would would fit the theme we're going for today. Right, right. Uh, On May 14th, 1804, uh, Clark and the rest of the gang joined Lewis in St. Charles, Missouri, and headed upstream on the Missouri River in boats, excuse me, in a keel boat and two smaller boats. And they were doing about 15 miles per day, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that's a lot of time on the water. It is crazy. On the Missouri River that Jacob just just talked about, too. And the way they had had to move, like they had two, they called them canoes. They also called them some like pirogues, I think they were called, which Mm. is just like a type of boat. But they're basically canoes and then a giant keel, like a 55 foot keel boat. And the way they had to move them is just pushing poles into the bottom of the river and literally pushing yourself yeah. along the way. Or they just had guys in the water pulling it. Yeah. So it's a huge boat. 15 miles doing that. Yeah. You're pretty tired at the end of the day. It's crazy. And then they just had two guys on horses like along the river. Oh, I would that love they would to be a horse walk guy. Walk around. Yeah. I definitely want to be the horse guy. For exploring inland. And while they were doing that, they were also running into like, you think insects are bad now? Imagine the untamed, untrimmed forests along the Missouri River. Yeah. So, like literal swarm, like clouds of bugs. They're rowing. They're rowing their boats through, and the strong river currents made the trip extremely tough. So, yes, you're pushing the poles into the water, but the river's also pushing you back yeah. in some cases, in some areas. And as I mentioned, this is a, like, they called it the Big Muddy River. So, like, yeah. it's a swampy-ass river. So, that's a lot of mosquitoes and stuff like that that are breeding in there. And to keep everyone in line, like, Lewis and Clark were kind of kind of dicks. They were, I shouldn't say dicks, we'll t- yeah, but think, they were very non, like, no-nonsense. I think we'll talk about that next episode a little more with, like, the punishments that they gave to some of the guys. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they... We can definitely get into it more next week, but yeah, they were not kind. No, <laughs> they didn't hold back. And it's portrayed a lot, like in schools and how we were taught. They were just a jolly group of guys just going out west. Parts no. of it they were. <laughs> yes, parts of it. True. Especially when they winter with the, with the tribes. Yeah. Uh, on August 20th of that year, 22-year-old Corps member Sergeant Charles Floyd died of an abdominal infection which is most likely, as we know now, appendicitis. And he was the only member of the Corps to die on their journey, which you have to give him some props. It's kind of insane that he's the only one, yeah. Like, But at this point of the journey, when he passes away, they had already started meeting with some of the tribes and stuff. Like They met with the group, uh, group known as the Ottos, the group known as the Missouris, and they kind of discussed with them how they got along with the other tribes in the area. They gave them gifts. And it's... They once they told these native peoples that hey we are in possession of this land now they were ex- like the native people were excited mm-hmm. they're like oh sweet we don't have to deal with all these French and Spanish people anymore if you guys are in charge that might be better right so you guys seem really nice so once they gave them the medals and stuff all of these native tribes are like can you can you give us a recommendation to what they refer to as their great father mm-hmm. aka the president. And they pretty much asked, hey, can you give us weapons? Can we trade with you guys to help us protect ourselves? Because they were at war constantly with the other tribes. Yeah, like they, you really had to play for the favor of the American government. Um, And unfortunately, that did lead to a lot of tribes that we weren't friendly with being wiped out. But to your point, like the Jefferson Indian Peace Medal, as it was called, like that coin, very funny because like it was engraved with a picture of Thomas Jefferson and the image of two hands clasps clasped beneath a tomahawk and a peace pipe with inscription of peace and friendship on the other. Like what? <laughs> I wonder what that coin would go for. Yeah, right. <laughs> the market. It's like the uh, Seinfeld episode where he gets the cigar store Indian. He's like, "Let's smoke a peace pipe." Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you know how racist that is. Right. Uh, but yeah, it, it was also funny hearing this book describe them meeting these tribes and talking about how they were at war with each other mm-hmm. because they they're like, yeah, the 
they were talking, and then Missouri's matter of fact told them, yeah, we went into their camp and tried to steal their horses, and then they caught two of us and killed us, so now we're at war. It's like, yeah, that'll happen. That will do it. That pisses people <laughs> off quite a bit. But yeah, it it's just, they had a lot of... Uh, this part of the journey, they have a lot of very similar interactions with the the natives that they come across. Yeah. I mean, all in all, they encounter roughly 50 different Native American uh, tribes, and it included the Shoshone, the Mandan, the Minotauri, the Blackfeet, which sounds very problematic when I say that, Yeah, but it's the name of the tribe, uh, the Chinook and the Sioux, and they had a very like set protocol yep. when they met Native Americans. Like you immediately start bartering goods, you set up trade, because a lot of the Indians had met white men before. Like they, like yeah. you mentioned, they knew the French uh, quite. I mean, the French who were there were there for like fur trapping. Yep, they're very prevalent during the earlier time periods. Right, and so these initial tribes are very open to trade. Uh, they were very nice, if you will. Like it's like, oh, it's. French adjacent people. Well, and they were kind of amazed by like a lot of the tools that these people were bringing with them, like the air rifles that they had and stuff. They kept firing those off every time they would meet these people, just kind mm-hmm. of show them, hey, look at we have. And so it was kind of all this new stuff that these people were being introduced to, even though they had seen white people before. Right. That like not all of them had guns, not all of them had all this fancy metals and stuff like that. So a yeah. picture of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. <laughs> it is funny though, because like all of the tribes except for one who didn't really drink or anything was just in love with the whiskey that they brought. Like they all really liked whiskey. Yep. And that got them in trouble with the Sioux tribe a little bit. But Yes, yeah. And just to wrap up on the peaceful Indians that they ran into. Like, Lewis and Clark held Indian councils, like with the Odo, which is near Council Bluffs, Iowa, and the Yankton Sioux at present-day Yankton, South Dakota. However, in late September, they encountered the Teton Sioux, yeah, who were not as friendly and tried to actually stop the boats and demanded a toll payment. Yeah, and, like, Council Bluffs, that was named by Lewis and Clark. That's where they held council right. with, like, I think it was like six different tribes. And they just had a big tent set up and just hung out. <laughs> now that sounds like the the best. Just but yeah, the the Teton Sioux they they were not keen on letting these white people. <laughs> no, and it ended up um, in many, or excuse me, in several skirmishes. That's the word I was going to say. Not full on battles, but ended in uh, quite a few skirmishes, skirmishes and deaths. Um, with the core of discovery eventually overpowering the Sioux because we have guns, <laughs> like they yeah. had guns. Well, it, it's it's funny too. Like the book that I read, they talked about this these encounters and pretty much said like, yeah, we gave them the same welcome, like we gave them gifts, we gave them medals, and then they got too drunk on the whiskey, and then they started getting belligerent. And as we were on the boat getting back to the the land, one of them like grabbed Clark and then he drew his sword and then mm-hmm. all of the guys came up and surrounded him and then they gave up. So it's, yeah, it's like this heroic battle scene right. where Clark comes out on top. Yep. Yep. Uh, in early November, the Corps came across villages of friendly Man, am I saying that? Mandan? Mandan. Mandan. It's either Mandan or Mandan. Gotcha. <clears throat> I think it's Mandan. In early November, the Corps came across villages of friendly Mandan and Minotauri Indians excuse me, Native Americans, uh, near present-day Washburn, North Dakota, and decided to set up camp downriver for the winter. Guess what the river was called, though? Was it the Missouri? No, it's called Knife River. That's very... Fucking awesome. It's very, very metal. That's (laughs) so cool. (laughs) Yeah, this is where they established their winter quarters, kind of hang out. Yeah, I mean, they literally, in four weeks, they built a triangular-shaped fort, like a true fort which was surrounded by 16-foot pickets and contained, like, a quarters, a storage room facility, like, a genuine fort to, like, set up and pave the way for future expeditions. See, this is what's wild to me about old-timey people, like, going all the way back to the Romans, where the Romans would build an entire fort (laughs) overnight and stuff. They just had way more motivation than I ever would. Can you imagine going, like, us two and, like, our... Our best buds just going out. Like, all right, it's nighttime. Time to build a fort. Let's build a cabin. <laughs> uh, the course spent the next five months at this fort, and they were hunting, foraging, 
making canoes, repairing anything that had broken so far, making more clothes, actually making moccasins. Little did yep. they know that white women everywhere <laughs> wear them <laughs> yeah. in the year of our this Lord, 2010. <laughs> Uh, and according to Clark's journal, the men were in good health overall, other than those suffering from, take a guess, dysentery, sexually transmitted yep. infections. Yeah. It's always, it's always STDs or dysentery. That's, yeah. Like get, get the people. We'll, we'll talk about the, the venereal diseases next week for yes. sure. But also this time, honestly, is kind of just the highlight period of the journey, I'd say. They celebrate yeah. New Year's with the Native Americans. They dance. They party. It, it's kind of just like guys right. being dudes. They laugh, they cry. They're all having a pretty yeah. great time, to be quite frank. Honestly, yeah. Um, but this is also a very important time because they meet a certain somebody. Yes, this is where they meet French-Canadian trapper Toussaint Charbonneau. And if we have any French listeners, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you got it. And they, <clears throat> and they hired him as their interpreter, and they also allowed his then pregnant Shoshone wife, Sacagawea, to join on the expedition. And obviously, she becomes an integral part of this journey. She is the third like highlighted name in the section of like the history book. For yeah. this. It's Lewis Clark Sacagawea. Yep. Uh, Sacagawea had been kidnapped by Hidatsa Indians at the age of 12 and was then sold to Charbonneau. So... I guess I don't know a ton about their actual relationship, but she was sold to him. I like, lo- I looked it up a little bit. I it was pretty much just a cursory glance at like what this was all about because I I had heard that she was purchased, and it seems like it was either like a payment for a gambling debt or yeah. he just outright bought her. I it didn't really. I don't think anyone really knows for sure. And there's also a lot of contention on like when she died and stuff like that. So her life is kind of mysterious outside of what is written in the journals it really is that is true like we only get the perspective from lewis and clark from the journals yeah but her son's name is jean baptiste which is just a very strong name very strong name (laughs) like for sure a pop singer for sure like the duke of something that guy is the guy you have to try and like get to take your hand to dance at a ball like like a big feast uh, in April of 1805, Lewis and Clark sent some of their crew and their keelboat loaded with zoological and botanical samplings, maps, reports, and letters back to St. Louis while the rest of the cores, the rest of the boys, headed for the Pacific Ocean. And Sacagawea. And Sa- yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. boys featuring. <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of where like the people that they signed on just to go a certain distance, this is where they all go back. And it's partially right. like... We just want to make sure that if we don't come back, at least some of this stuff that we've gotten all the way here with comes back. So we did do something to earn that twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah. Loan. Well, and it's too, this is crazy too because a lot of the people at a certain point when they hadn't returned are like, that whole expedition died. They're done. They're gone. Like the the people back home. So. For them to send this back is probably a good sign for a lot of the people back home who are like, I don't know if my husband, son, (laughs) brother, whoever is dead. Right. Uh, They crossed through Montana and made their way to the Continental Divide uh, via the Lemmy Pass, where, with, of course, our main lady's help, they purchased horses from the Shoshone. Sacagawea was a fantastic interpreter, fantastic communicator. So helped them out a ton when they had to communicate with these different tribes. Well, and she was a Lemmy Shoshone herself, so yes. that also helped. That they they actually, I think, from one thing that I saw, ran into a group of Shoshone Indians, and the guy in charge just happened to be her brother. Her brother, yeah. yeah so it just really ended up being a, a lucky turn of fate. Yeah, first time seeing her since she was kidnapped. Like that's that's crazy, for, like a crazy realization, and for it to be like a courteous endeavor. After seeing your sister who was kidnapped for however long. And then to keep, like, keep going, yeah. these men. And like, just to let them pass. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, the group then headed out of the pass and crossed the Bitterroot Mountain Range using the Lolo Trail and the help of a lot of horses and a lot of Shoshone guides. Yeah, they also had a man, um, Mandan tribe that, or a Mandan guide that came with them too from the settlement. Right, right, right. This part of the journey was probably one of the most difficult ones. A lot of the men 
love the party. There were women there, Evan. A lot of the party suffered from frostbite, hunger, dehydration. The weather was terrible. Like it's, you've heard this before with trips out west. Like the weather is always terrible in these passes. And prickly pear cactuses were just poking through their moccasins. That was one of the biggest things that they mentioned in the journals. It's just the fact that there's so many cactuses. Another freaking cactus. (laughs) After 11 days on this trail, the Corps stumbled upon a tribe of friendly Nez Pierce Indians along the Clearwater River, and the Indians took in the travelers, fed them, and helped regain their health. As the Corps recovered, they built dugout canoes, then left their horses with the Nez Perce Indians as a thank you, and braved the Clearwater Rapids to Snake River and then to the Columbia River. They reportedly ate dog meat along the way instead of wild game. I hate everyone it was the native americans actually were like they gifted them with dog meat when they would show up to the different camps so it was apparently a common thing that they ate and a lot of the guys on the journey were like it's good (laughs) (laughs) damn you start looking never mind (laughs) it's like the chinese dog food festival or whatever that they do that was the precursor so yeah, like along this way, they're like traveling through North Dakota, Montana, like those northern states. All that goes pretty smooth. And then this is kind of where we get a lot of the plant life, the animal life that they catalog, just because they didn't really have a lot of other stuff going on. They didn't encounter any tribes of Native Americans for a really long period of time. So it was just animals, plants surviving. <laughs> yeah, right. But like at the end of the day, they got like almost 200 animals, 200 plants that they were able to record and bring back. A lot of that is during this period. They came across prairie dogs, elk, grizzly bears, which they called white bears because apparently during different seasons, their fur gets really light colored and they wanted to distinguish them from black bears and brown bears. And so, yeah, they're kind of traveling through. They come upon the Yellowstone tributary of the Missouri River. They explore that area. There's a ton of buffalo. And it's also around this time the group comes across a big split in the Missouri River. And this is one of the biggest choices in the discovery, like the core of Discovery's journey, because one of them goes north and it's called the Marius River and the Missouri River continued south, but they didn't know which one was which. And they had to decide which one to go with quickly, because if they didn't make the right decision, if they went north instead of going south, they would have gotten trapped in the winter months before being able to cross the mountains. And it would have probably been a Donner Party situation, and I don't think any of them would, probably would have survived. No. So this is a very big decision. And Lewis just said, let me take a few days. I'll go on ahead and the southern one, which I think is the correct one. And if I figure out this is the correct, I'll come back and then we can go. And that's what he did. He went down, he found the Missouri Falls, the Great Missouri Falls, and then he went back and said, hey, this is the right way. And then he described the Great Falls as like one of the best things he'd seen in his entire life. So like this is yeah. a very big decision that ended up being correct. And it was very lucky lucky for them. Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> because like this is a part of the country that no one, like none of the white settlers had been to yet. I don't know if Sacagawea would have known at this if, point if she would have been that far west. Yeah. At this point, probably not. And this is before they met with Inez Pierce. So they, this mm-hmm. was, very big <laughs> intentional or a very big uh, independent decision they had to make. Yeah, they chose. <laughs> they chose well. They chose well. Yeah. So, but yeah, that was kind of one of the the last big things that they had to do before they they met up with the Nez Pierce. Mm-hmm. So, in November of 1805, the Corps of Discovery finally reached the Pacific Ocean. They completed their mission and had to now find a place to live for the winter before heading home. Which that has to be also like. Oh, yeah, we have to go back. <laughs> we're, we're here. We did it. Now what? Now what? So they decided to make camp near present-day Astoria, Georgia, and started building Fort Clatsop on December 10th, and were moved in by Christmas. So yeah. in two weeks, they had an entire fort built. Not bad. They're, they're pretty good at that. This was not an easy winter. Uh, like you mentioned, the last time that they had to you know, hunker down at Fort Mandan, you mentioned that that was like the best point in the journey. This one, not so much. Yeah, this is a rough patch. Everyone struggled to keep themselves and their supplies dry and fought a constant battle with fleas and other insects. I mean, if you know anything about the West Coast of America, especially the Northwest, it's ve- the weather is very unpredictable out there. Yeah. It's very rainy. It's very wet. It's just 
it's not comfortable, especially in a winter where you're trying to sleep in a hut. (laughs) Right. So everyone's wet. Your food's wet. There's fleas and all other insects like biting you constantly. There's still the STD problem that they still have. And now a lot of the members of the journey uh, contacted or, excuse me, contracted stomach problems. So, like flu like symptoms, most likely they said, or excuse me, they said that this was most likely like bacterial infections. Yeah. Uh, from just being, I mean, they're out on the, well, and you're on the trail for years. And you're re- replenishing your water from sources that you're not certain are going to be clean. Isn't that crazy? So, so thing? yeah, you're pretty much like at this point, all you're doing to clean the water is boiling it. So, I mean, yeah. it's not going to be foolproof. That's so crazy to think that there was just a very good chance if you scooped up water that that would be your last. That you'd shit your brains out yeah, the next week. <laughs> you just died. Uh, in March of 1806, the Corps left Fort Clatsop for their home journey. It is kind of crazy how quickly, like, I mean, I, it makes sense that they get back so much faster just because they know the route now. Right. And they're traveling downstream on the Missouri if the currents are taking them back to St. Louis. But it is like, starkly different the time period that it takes them to get home right oh my gosh yeah from 1804 to like late 1805 to get there so a year and a half or so that's a long time it's like four months to get back it's a long (laughs) time to be sleeping underneath the stars yeah so they reached the nez pierce camp and got their horses back they were like we were just renting and we're not done playing with them we want our horses back (laughs) it was the the horse pawn shop yeah (laughs) Pit my Chum, horse. Chum Lee was there. <laughs> yeah. uh, then they waited until June uh, for the snow to melt to cross the mountains into the Missouri River Basin. After again traversing the Better Root mountain range, Lewis and Clark split up at Lolo Pass. Lewis's group took a shortcut north to the Great Falls of the Missouri River and explored Maria's River, a tributary of the Missouri in Montana, while Clark's group which included Sacagawea and her family, went south along the Yellowstone River. The two groups planned to rendezvous. The two groups planned to rendezvous where the Yellowstone and Missouri met in North Dakota. I think that Lewis just really liked the, the waterfall, he, he honestly. He loves that waterfall. He, it is beautiful. He said it was like the best thing he'd ever seen, so yeah. I guess it, it makes sense. It was in July of 1806 that Clark carved his name and the date on a large rock formation near the Yellowstone River that he named Pompey's Pillar, after Sacagawea's son, whose nickname was Pompey. The site is now a national monument managed by the U.S. Department of the Interior. It's a weird nickname. Give a kid. <laughs> Pompey. It's yeah. like one and a half years old. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was two days later at Maria's River near present-day Cutbank, Montana, that Lewis and his group encountered eight Blackfeet warriors and were forced to kill two of them when they tried to steal weapons and horses. The location of the clash became known as the Two Medicine Fight Site. Gotta do what you gotta do. Right, no one takes our horses. We just got them back. (laughs) Honestly. Dude, horses for like a hundred years were just like, if you touch my horse, I'm gonna get you killed. Oh my, the horses were the biggest like trade item oh, yeah. for the longest time when they settled california like the donner party one of those guys yeah. or one of the women that survived her husband got hung like a year after they got married because he tried to steal a horse that's right it's like yeah you can't catch a break huh no this was the only violent episode of the entire expedition this was the only violent episode of the expedition and soon after lewis was accidentally shot in his buttocks during a hunting trip yep <laughs> The injury was very painful and extremely inconvenient, as you can imagine, but was not fatal. No. Very funny to get shot in the ass. Yeah, Lewis has a... His relationship with guns goes downhill once he's on the tail end of the journey and afterwards. Yeah, he doesn't have a good time. No. His Uh, life in general doesn't go well. He he struggles on the way back. Or excuse me, after they get back. Well, even Jefferson, before he left, said, like, Lewis is prone to like depressive episodes, so he, he that was kind of something that he dealt with throughout his life. Got to keep the spirits high. Yeah, so but it didn't affect the journey, I guess. So. Right. Uh, in August of 1806, Lewis and Clark and their crews reunited and dropped off Sacagawea and her family at the Mandan villages. They then headed down the Missouri River with the currents moving in the favor, in their favor this time, 
and arrived in St. Louis on September 23rd, where they received a hero's welcome. Yeah, so that would six months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> compared to a year and a, a half. A year and a half, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cut the time down a little bit. I guess you don't have to stop at all the tribes and like greet them and hang out and stuff like that. So right, right. Save some time. You're not partying with the man <laughs> For five months, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, after this, Lewis and Clark returned to Washington, D.C. in the fall of 1806 and shared their experiences with President Jefferson. While they failed to identify a Northwest Passage, they had completed their mission of surveying the Louisiana Territory from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. And they did so against extreme odds, only had one death, and only one, basically only one violent episode. It is truly incredible that only one guy dies. That never happens. I, I, when I heard that, I was like, that's insane. <laughs> that's very impressive. You have to give Lewis and Clark a lot of credit. Yeah. I'm sure like there were a lot of stressors around this entire trip. Well, and that's where like the decision to go south on that mm-hmm. that split in the river. A lot of people think if even if they would have like if they wouldn't have gotten trapped, just the extra added time of going up and coming back down and taking the right path. A lot of the guys on the journey might not have been as favorable towards Lewis and Clark after that failed decision. So Oh, yeah, they're all well, it's like the Christopher Columbus story where the crew was so pissed at them, yeah. at him, for not getting them there, and they almost chopped off his head. Right. Like, if it only takes one decision like that for a lot of people to turn. So, yeah, like, that was a big decision. But other than that, everything, everyone was pretty cordial. Everyone mm-hmm. was happy. And the Corps at this point, just kind of reviewing everything, the Corps had traveled more than 8,000 miles, produced invaluable maps and geographical information identified 120-plus animal specimens and 200 plant samples, and initiated peaceful relations with dozens of Native American tribes. So very impactful at the time. This trip was extremely impactful at the time, just with discovering the entire... It's called one of like the greatest expeditions in American history, which they can't argue with that. They did pretty great work, to be quite frank. Uh, both Lewis and Clark received double pay and 1,600 acres of land for their efforts. That is Ballin. so awesome. And they're already a rich family. And then he's like, hey, Lewis, you're in charge of all of that yeah. stuff that we just bought. <laughs> yeah, Lewis was just made, go- or was then made governor of the Louisiana Territory. And Clark was appointed brigadier general of militia for the territory and was made a federal Indian agent. Clark remained well-respected and lived a very successful life. Lewis, however, was not an effective governor and drank far too much. He never married or had children and died in 1809 of two gunshot wounds, possibly self-inflicted. Yeah, there's, I, there's a big conspiracy. I read we'll a lot about into. that. Yeah, we'll talk about that. I don't know if we'll Probably talk about next, next week. week yeah. yeah. But <laughs> yeah, he... Uh, he had some enemies, I guess, just because like people didn't like how he ran the territory. The guy that used to run the territory was a Spaniard mm-hmm. who was like kind of pissed that he got usurped for that title. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot that goes into that. But he he like I said, struggled with depression very heavily. He drank a lot. Just wasn't re- he wasn't ready for the come down after being a national mm-hmm. hero. He like yeah. coming back to that huge welcome and all of this celebration and then immediately being put at a desk job. Right. It just didn't, You're it not didn't work for him. Yeah. He didn't know how to handle that. A few years later, Sacagawea died and Clark became her children's guardian, which oh, is actually kind of cool. Did she? Or did she? <laughs> <laughs> she may have survived until 1884. So, Oh <laughs> yeah. There's like a placard in one of the reservations that say like, she came back to the tribe. I think it was the Shoshone tribe that she was from. They say like, yeah, she came back and stayed here until 1884. She lived to like 90. So it's another thing we'll cover next. That's week. what I mean. There's like a lot of mystery around like right. how she lived outside of this. Uh, despite Lewis's tragic end, his expedition with Clark remains one of America's most famous. The duo and their crew, with the help of Sacagawea and other Native Americans, helped strengthen America's claim to the West and inspired what we have talked about several times on the show. The idea of manifest destiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is kind of like, like it seems weird at first when I read that Clark adopted Sacagawea's kids. Right. But 
like all of the reports that I saw about him and the kids said like he was really doting to them. Like I think he yeah. honestly just really loved those kids. Right. So I don't think that's something where it's just like he took advantage of it or anything. I think he just truly liked the kids and wanted to be a good treat them well. Like, yeah. I mean Clark, he was he was one of ten kids growing yeah, up. Honestly, so yeah. I'm sure he like his family life, like he knew how to participate and not be like the typical man of the age. Yeah. It is interesting but, that like, I don't know if that would affect, I guess it'd be interesting because he was so young in the family. Like mm-hmm. looking at, looking at first, maybe like, Oh yeah, he was in the family of 10. Maybe he raises younger siblings, but he never really did. So I think he just right. like liked kids. Yeah. Not, not in that way. Yeah. He, not in the, <laughs> he enjoyed their company. He wasn't the creepy <laughs> uncle. kind no. of William Clark. But, no, no. <laughs> you know, he was just a good guy, I guess. So, Well, yeah, that is the first rendition of our coverage of Lewis and Clark. Like we mentioned, next week, we'll really dive into the other perspectives. I think next week's not going to... It's going to be less of a story. It's going to be more of a discussion. It's just yeah. going to be a lot of like... Because I, I found a lot of really good articles online about... From Native American publications that talk about how the bicentennial was celebrated and the mm-hmm. reservations and stuff like that. And uh, there's a lot of perspectives in there that I was kind of surprised to hear. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of, you kind of know what to expect on other, other situations. So yeah. Right. Right. It's going to be interesting to talk about all that. We're going to talk about York. We'll talk about Chicago. Thank you. A little bit more. Uh, but yeah, we're going to get into all that next week. I hope you guys like this one. I know Lewis and Clark is a well-trod story. It's been told at least in America to pretty much everyone in school but outside of the country i don't know if people really know about this all that much so if you're a listener that is listening abroad hopefully you learn some stuff from this and yeah next week we'll uh we'll get into a little bit more of the uh the oddities and the controversial nature of some of the things that happened so yes absolutely all right evan uh, you want to give give them our plugs yes if you, you want to plug them up evan yeah <laughs> You can follow us on X at gems underscore history. You find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at Whatevskis. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and all other social medias. Just search Gems of History Podcast and you can interact with us. Um, and uh, <clears throat> then also, we still have the Patreon going uh, if you feel inclined to, to join. Uh, of course, with the announcement of the show being, you know, come, uh, I can't even say it. Without, wrapping up. Wrapping up. Um, we would appreciate any donations, but of course not, not required, but, uh, until next week. Yes. That's all we got for you guys today. So I hope you guys have a great week this week. We are approaching the end of the year already, which is crazy to think, but yeah, we got, got Thanksgiving coming up in a few weeks and stuff like that or whatever you guys celebrate wherever you are in the world. So I hope you guys are doing well. Hope you guys are all taking care of each other, loving one another, and we love you. So thank Mm -hmm. you for listening and stay polished.